This morning we find ourselves back, surprise, surprise, in 2 Kings, as we're continuing uh, to work through these narratives that concern the ministry of the great prophet Elisha. And this morning we're in chapter 6, um, and continuing through chapter to the end of chapter 7. This morning we're reading about the, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, the, the capital city is the city of Samaria. It has been surrounded by their enemies. That's where we are finding them uh, at the start of our, our reading. Um, and so... Uh, the Syrian army has placed a long-term siege, and which has reduced the city to uh, dire famine. In this theologically driven historical narrative, we are provided this Old Testament picture, this illustration of the salvation that God would ultimately provide through his Son. So to save a little time, I am going to begin, I'm going to start in chapter 7, even though our passage begins in the middle of chapter 6. Um, but in leading up to our reading and, and um, having put the city of Samaria under siege, the people of the city, as a result, have been cut off uh, for, it appears, a long duration from uh, food and supplies. They're running so low on food that some are, in fact, resorting to cannibalism. And when the king of Israel learns of the cannibalism, he lashes out in anger against the prophet Elisha. The king sends an officer to Elisha's home, which apparently is also in Samaria, with orders to end the prophet's life. So this officer has orders to behead the prophet. The king follows after his officer and lead, uh, uh, and as we work into our reading, the, the, the passage just prior ends with this little phrase. It's a message of the king, apparently through his uh, officer. This trouble, that is, this famine, is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You know, why, why should I keep praying? Um, all hope is lost. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of God's word? But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he, Elisha, said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, 
So they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come uh, against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, until the morning light punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses, uh, but the horses uh, tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen and uh, and the king sent them out after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. So they went out after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Well, let's pray. O Lord of light, Lord, shine forth upon us so that we would see you, that our lips may praise you, And our lives may glorify you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So this narrative begins with the desperation of the Israelites within the northern kingdom in the the capital city of Samaria. As a result of being surrounded uh, by the Syrian army, the the people of Samaria are starving. 
So Samaria served as the royal capital. It was roughly 40 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Uh, Both king, the king apparently had a palace there, and Elisha the prophet also had a home in Samaria. Because food was so scarce, the prices for the lowest quality food was beyond the ordinary uh, person's ability to purchase. Just going back into chapter 6 and and verse 25, we read this. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, what's being announced there is the, the, the dire situation of these Israelites because um, uh, a common laborer, an unskilled laborer, could expect to earn roughly a silver shekel in a month's time. And here, this donkey's head, this is a part of, a, first of all, they didn't normally eat donkeys. Donkeys were considered unclean. But even as part of the body, you wouldn't eat the, the head of a donkey. And, and the point here is, the very worst things that might potentially be edible were going for multiple months of, of the common laborer's um, uh, salary. It means that there was essentially no food available, at least not for the ordinary people. And the result of this is that the people are resorting to cannibalism. Uh, this reference to cannibalism is not merely, that's in chapter 6, it's, it's not merely gratuitous on the part of the author, as so many scenes in today's uh, movies are, just purely gratuitous. But in this case, the inspired author wants to draw our attention to, he, in the way he describes uh, what's taking place in the city, he's drawing our attention to the law of Moses, and specifically to the covenant curses resulting from spiritually turning away from Yahweh and turning towards uh, the worship of idols. In Deuteronomy 28, okay, so this is the section of Deuteronomy that um, is outlining these curses that if the people disobey, if they reject God's laws, if they reject God himself, this is what they are to expect Deuteronomy 28, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. And then moving to verses 52 and 53, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Part of the point is that in spite of Elisha's presence, this is so fascinating, they have one of the greatest men in their history living in their presence, living in their city. This is the prophet Elisha. And he is working miracles that can only be explained as the divine, uh, miraculous, supernatural work of Yahweh. Everything uh, Elisha says comes to pass. And yet the people persist 
in their unbelief. So often, unbelief and, and these seasons of unbelief, um, they're not the result of a lack of evidence. It's, it's not a problem. It's not like they didn't have Elisha right in their midst. It's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a hardness of heart that just refuses to believe and just desires to do what they want to do. Nevertheless, there is a remnant of believers within Israel, something we saw to be true in the even more dire uh, time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. As you recall, even in that time, God told Elijah that there were still 7,000. Elijah's like, whoa, it's me. I'm the only one left. No, there are 7,000, Elijah, the Lord tells him, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. But nevertheless, the author is showing us that this famine is triggered by Israel's unbelief and their disobedience to God and his law. This is a desperation. It's a misery of their own making. And it points to the horrifying experience of being held accountable by a holy and just God for their injustices, for their immorality, for their wickedness of thinking that they know better than the God who made them and the God who redeemed them out of Egypt. And in this, we're given a picture of our own sins, what our sins, how they're viewed in God's sight and and what they deserve. God gave the Israelites lots of warnings, first through Moses and the law, then through the prophets that followed. He did this as a mercy and a kindness. But time and time again, the Israelites rejected God's many warnings. And this points to this reality, I think, that most humans throughout history, they underestimate, they, 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 they don't understand how God views our immorality. We all want to think that our sins aren't really that bad. We want to think that God doesn't really mean what he says. And many, if not most people, they live their lives to their dying day with this this view until it is, in fact, too late. And the reality is, you know, in the days of Noah, another period of great wickedness, God saved his people, Noah and his family, through the judgment within the ark. And what he's showing us throughout the scriptures is that God has provided us an ark. In the days of Elisha, it was, it was believing the word of Elisha, placing their trust in Yahweh and his, and, and his promises. In our day, it's placing our trust in the true uh, son of God himself, the prophet among all prophets, uh, the prince of peace, the son of God, Jesus and trusting in him to be our ark that will take us safely through the coming, terrifying wrath of God that will come. And note, the most powerful man at this time, next to, you know, the prophet Elisha, is the king of Israel, okay, at least within the northern kingdom. And note that the king, with all his royal power, that all the wealthy officials that surround him with all of their wealth, with all the academics, you know, that probably populate the capital city, they are completely powerless to do anything about this desperate crisis in which they find themselves. 
So often we look to mighty people, mighty men and women to save us. There is no salvation. It's part of what this message is is telling us, apart from God himself. And despite the impossible situation in which the Samaritans find themselves, there is, nevertheless, a way out. It's a solution that arises not from human strength or ingenuity, It is the way of God's sovereign power and unmerited grace. And one of the ironies of this narrative is that the salvation of the Lord will be discovered by the most unlikely witnesses. It's four lepers. It's almost comical. Four lepers who discover the good news of God's salvation. And so there were these four men. They were afflicted with leprosy. That is some undefined skin disease, very serious. It would have meant that they were unclean, isolated from uh, common uh, uh, company. They're in the, the gates of Samaria, wondering if they should plead their case, plead with the officials to let them into the city. But then they reason to themselves, but even if they let us in, then what? There's no food inside. And they think to themselves, and if we just stay in the gates, we're going to die. So what choice do we have? Let's, let's go out to the Syrians. They're encamped. Apparently, they're doing quite well. They're living off the land. They've got food and, and supplies. All they can do is kill us, you know, and, and then, you know, that's, uh, that's not the worst thing that can happen. So they, they take their, um, their chances with going out to the Syrian encampment. It's twilight, just as the sun is is setting for the day. And lo and behold, they reach the outskirts of the Syrian um, encampment, and it's a ghost town. Okay, this is, I mean, just put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. I mean, first, there's confusion. Like, what accounts for this? I mean, they're the animals. They're the tents. And it appears that there's equipment and, and there's almost like fires that are still smoking within this encampment, but no people. It's like literally an episode of the Twilight Zone. And then this confusion, you know, after they kind of get through this confusion, the reality of the situation begins to sink in. I mean, after all, these men are starving. And they realize that all the provisions are left within the camp, and they, they begin to explore, and their eyes go as big as saucers, right? And there inside these tents are all kinds of bread and food and probably fruit, and then there's, there's water and wine inside these tents. And, you know, it's like a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. You know, they're all like drinking and covering themselves and, you know, in clothing and, and, and jewels or whatever, you know, is in there. And in fact, It's weird, but this encampment has silver and gold and extra clothes. And so they're rummaging through, you know, the first tent, just eating to their heart's delight. They can't believe this. It's like a dream to them. They go to the second tent, and again, they continue to to just engorge themselves. The salvation of Samaria has arrived And it's not by might. It's not by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord. 
Or as the psalmist writes, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, this tells us something about the God we worship. So often we think of the Old Testament version of God as being just so, you know, terrifying and cruel. But in spite of Israel's unbelief, the rejection of God and his covenant, their worship of idols, even though it's triggered clearly the curses of the covenant, God relents. In fact, the king had even made an attempt on the life of God's prophet. And in spite of all this, and so consistent with God's character, he relents. He displays his almighty power in order to show forth his mercy, his kindness, the riches of his grace. And again, it's not to the godly kings in the southern kingdom, but to the northern kingdom with their golden calf worship centers and their commitment to idol uh, worship. Let us just be clear. The God we worship does not treat us as our sins deserve. So often when we go our own way, when we fail to put our trust in the Lord, we turn to the idols of our own making, whether it's money or knowledge or our own intelligence or some relationship or some immoral um, uh, pleasure. God, so often he doesn't give us what we deserve. And our response is often not, wow, Lord, you're so good to us. Our response is so often, well, I guess he doesn't really care. You see what we're doing? We, we, we misidentify God's mercy and grace. We think God doesn't, you know, I, I don't think my sins are that bad. Maybe he doesn't either. He understands, right? You know, and every time we think in that direction, we need to remind ourselves of Good Friday we need to remind ourselves of the horrific suffering that Jesus endured leading up to and on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, notice who has the privilege of discovering what God has done. Four anonymous lepers. No one lower in society than lepers. And they're likely in the gates because they're, they're pariahs. We are not letting them in. They're unclean. But here we see another truth about who God is. God sees. He loves the poor. He loves the humble. He loves to exalt them in due time while humbling the proud and the arrogant and the powerful and the elite. God sees and he knows. And this is consistent with the truth of 2 Kings where God loves to use little servant girls to bring salvation to the mighty. It is four lepers that are the first to witness God's salvation. And this continues on into the New Testament, doesn't it? With those whose word would not be accepted as credible within a court of law, the women who are the first to discover God's salvation when they arrive at the empty tomb. And think about the illustration of salvation here. 
Again, think about these men who are starving, a city that is starving. And not only are they, you know, have the means to get them out of slowly, you know, like this, the slow return to normalcy. No, they come into a tent. They come into an encampment full of livestock, full of food, full of wine and drink. It's not like they just have a little bread to, to begin to get them back to normal. But in the space of one day, they go from, from starving to a feast. Well, can you imagine the joy of their uh, deliverance? A joy that, as their scouts would later find, was the result of, of the enemy hearing, you know, the, the, the footsteps of God, um, hearing the enemy armies approaching. Ours is a salvation that makes this pale in comparison. What the Lord has achieved for us through the, the coming of Jesus himself, through his ministry, through his teaching, through his death and resurrection, through the many blessings that we receive, blessings that not only last into this life as, you know, an enemy encampment might, riches that would last maybe for a lifetime, but the riches that we receive in Christ last into all eternity. Citizenship into God's own kingdom described as a marriage feast and, and the Jewish people know how to throw a party. And that's the image used of the coming kingdom that the Lord himself promises for his people. In this story, we're given this picture of unsurpassing joy, and this is what is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, what do you do when you discover and receive such glorious news? Well, in our narrative, we're reminded that good news is meant to be shared. Okay, good news is meant to be shared. At first, the lepers, I mean, if I'm the leper, I probably would have gone more than two tents. Okay, so they're going into two tents. They're hiding for themselves some money. But then they come to their senses. And and we pick this up in verse 9. Then they said to one another, we, you know, this, you didn't want any of them to say, you wonder who the first guy was to say this. We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. There it is. This is a day of gospel. That's what um, the gospel literally means. It means good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They knew that sooner or later, the news of the Syrian encampment would be discovered by others. And that, you know, and they think to themselves, and what are the people going to think? Or what's the king going to think if he finds out we knew and we didn't tell anyone? They would, in fact, be held accountable for withholding this news. And this is, in fact, part of the logic of, logic of Christian evangelism. Just remember, the word itself, evangelism, it just flows out of the Greek term for gospel. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. 
That's where we get the, the, the word uh, uh, to evangelize. It's the good news. And the logic of the lepers holds for us. On the one hand, hearing and receiving the good news concerning Jesus is like the discovery of the Syrian encampment. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between alienation and guilt and this gnawing sense that things are not right. It's the difference between that and being reconciled, being made at peace with your creator, God, by having your guilt taken away and experiencing new life and freedom in Christ. It is a message of life and death. And further, it's an opportunity for others to share in the joy of discovering, you know, pearl by pearl, uh, treasure by treasure, the benefits, the blessings that we have in and through Christ. This is a necessary message. The gospel is a necessary message. And it's a message that rightly understood brings joy. Now, at first, the king was skeptical of the message. Uh, And so he sends his scouts uh, to scout out the the encampment. But once the news is confirmed, this famine turns into a feast in the space of one day. Only God can do that. And only God can save sinners. Sinners. Our narrative doesn't conclude here, but with a warning to those who reject, who mock the good news. Early on, when the king and his officials show up at the home of Elisha, full of frustration and anger, Elisha issues this this promise, this prediction backed by divine authority. So all the way back in verse 1, Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. He's emphasizing, this isn't just my, you know, this isn't just arising from wishful thinking. This is coming from the Lord. He's saying it twice. Tomorrow about this time, a sia of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. Okay, so a sia is something like seven and a half quarts. Just prior to this, a donkey's head was going for 80 shekels. Now you're going to find seven and a half quarts of, of, uh, of fine flour for just one sia. It's still expensive, okay, if you understand the economics of the time. But now that's, that's really a complete reversal, you see, of their current circumstances. And the same with two sias of barley, only one shekel of, of, uh, uh, of silver. After issuing this divine promise, however, one of the king's officials mocks Elisha. It's the captain who the king leans on. And this captain says, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? Or to give you a sense of what this official is essentially saying, he's saying, not even God could do that. Now, where have you heard that kind of line before? Not even God could sink that ship. Remember that? And then the Titanic sailed. (laughs) Well, this is the kind of remark that this official is uttering. 
And so in the final section, we read how the king uh, assigned this captain to have charge over the gate of the city. And when it was confirmed that the Syrians had fled the land and that they had left all their belongings behind, the people just rush out of the city in mass. And the result of this is, is that this captain, this high official to the king, is trampled and killed. And this all serves as this warning not to reject the word of God, especially as it is delivered through the prophet of God. In our time, we have someone who has come, and again, who is far greater than the prophet Elisha. And God has honored the words of Jesus like no other, ultimately raising Christ from the dead, just as Jesus predicted. And this leads to a similar warning given within the New Testament and the letter to the Hebrews to those who are tempted to disregard the word of God, to disregard the promises of Jesus. In Hebrews 12.25, we read this. See that you do not refuse Christ who is speaking. For if they, that is the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The Lord continues to warn us. And to show us there is a way. There is a way of salvation, and his name is Jesus. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for speaking to our hearts by the Spirit through the Scriptures. Lord, you faithfully remind us to meditate on those things that belong to our peace strengthen and confirm our faith in you and in the inspired record of the great things which you have done for our salvation. Lord, grant that we would not fall into error nor waste the time that you've given us. Day by day, in the midst of temptations and disappointments, Lord, grant us the assurance of your promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.